0: Talking history. history
1: on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Kagan. In tonight's show, the 12 women and men who helped define Georgian Britain, the rise and fall of Christian Ireland, a Shannon Singer and his world. The Evangelical Campaign in Dingle and West Kerry in the 19th century. And to end the show, we look at the history of railways told through remarkable drawings from the time. Now, last week, we looked at the life and work of the extraordinary writer Ernest Hemingway, and we explored the torment as well as the genius. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show by meeting... The Georgians. Mad, bad and dangerous to know is how Lord Byron was described by one of his many lovers, and mad, bad and dangerous to know also serves as a good description for the entire Georgian period, the hundred or so years between the coronation of George I in seventeen fourteen and the death of George IV in eighteen thirty, and a new book explores the Georgian era through the diverse lives of twelve magnificent if not moral people who defined it. The book is called Meet the Georgians, Epic Tales from Britain's Wildest Century. It's published in hardback by William Collins. The author is Robert Peel. And Robert, you're very welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Can we begin first of all with a, a broad question about the Georgian era? It doesn't really seem to to get as much attention as some other periods of British history like the Victorian era or the Tudor era. And
2: I wonder why is that? I think there's there's various different reasons, and I can never, whilst writing the book, I can never decide which I think is the most important. But I think high up there is certainly is the fact that the monarchs are less interesting. Uh, the monarchs who give the name to the period, uh, George's one and two, sort of blur into each other. You might be aware of who George the third is because he went mad, and George the fourth is essentially a thoroughly unpleasant individual who people don't really want to spend too much time thinking about, and. They, they don't have the, they don't have the color or the intrigue of the Tudors. Um, they don't have the, they didn't impose themselves upon the culture and the spirit of the age in the way that Queen Victoria did. Um, and they don't have the, the drama of the Stuarts, which I think brings us on to the second reason, which is the 18th century, um, the mid 18th century, uh, until the American War of Independence, perhaps is an extraordinarily stable and relatively uneventful period. So if you think of the mid-17th century, you've got plague, Great Fire of London, Civil War, Restoration. Mid-18th century, it's, it's just decades of relatively peaceful stability. Um, so I think those two reasons are perhaps why it hasn't been given the attention that it maybe deserves. And I think the third reason is that the big stories that are happening at the time are um, the growth of the british empire and the industrial revolution um, people have struggled to know how to tell those stories uh in a, a um, to a to a 20th 21st century audience um, and i think that's changing a bit i think that there's, there's obviously been a big uh, revival of interest in the british empire and Personally, teaching the industrial revolution uh, during my day job as a teacher to pupils, I think that uh, the, the continual conversation about environment and fossil fuels means that that has become more interesting then perhaps than it has been in the past. So, yeah, those would be, those are my working theories for why it doesn't get the attention it maybe deserves.
1: And it certainly was a very wild period as you show through the lives of these men and women. And you have an awful lot happening in terms of new foods and new fashions and demands for women's rights and debates about God and, you know, attacks on slavery. It's a very dramatic period. And I wonder why did things become much more conservative or seem to become much more conservative and restrained afterwards when we have the Victorian period?
2: Oh, Um, fascinating question. And I I dedicate the conclusion of the book to trying to answer that. Um, I think it goes back to what I was just saying about the, um, it's sometimes called the mid-18th century, the age of equivoids or the age of equilibrium. There was a real, um, there was this stability and this prosperity, which meant that people could become more relaxed about their more morally relaxed and more, um, uh, give more license to, uh, to sort of dissolute behavior of your Georgian libertines and rakes. And I think when that age of equipoise starts to end and suddenly um, historical events start to feel a bit more serious and a bit more immediate, um, that, that moral complacency starts to go. So I think those big events um, that take place towards the end of the 18th century, the first big one has to be the American War of Independence. That That feels real hammer blow to the aristocratic governments of the 18th century. And their um, their generally dissolute moral ways, or at least how they're perceived, suddenly become much less fashionable once this hugely traumatic event for the British ruling class has occurred. Then I think the Industrial Revolution obviously brings in much more uncertainty and much more um, instability to a lot of people's lives. And... And then just a enormous revival in evangelical Christianity. And there's a real lull in Christian um, enthusiasm after the 17th century and after the European wars of religion and the religious sectarianism of the English Civil War. And then with with the Methodists and with Wesley towards the end of the 18th century, religion starts to um, really impose itself on British national life in a way that it hadn't for about a century. And, And I think those are the seeds of victorian morality that you start to see towards the end of the georgian period and actually by the time you get to 1830 and george IV dies and you're through to the last hanoverian king william IV, the the culture and the morality by that point very much is proto-victorian
1: i like the way you tell the story of the period through these 12 men and women and i wonder how you went about choosing them and and what stories attracted you to their lives
2: yeah, I would say it's always been a, a century that I've been fascinated by. And a handful of them were individuals I already knew a lot about. Um, uh, Bonnie, Some of them, uh, you know, very well known still today, Bonnie Prince, Charlie and Lord Byron, um, and Mary Wollstonecraft as well. So there's a dozen of them. And I'd say maybe six I went into writing the book knowing I'm absolutely going to include them. And then a few of them I found out about along the way, and a few of them I was dimly aware of. But when I started reading more about, I thought they they absolutely need to be in there. Um, Tipu Sultan, for example, I I remember as a as a child going to the Victoria and Albert Museum in South Kensington, and you see Tipu's tiger there. He was this Indian um, Indian ruler of the kingdom of Mysore who fought against the British Empire um, four times and was killed on the fourth time, uh, on the fourth occasion. But it is generally seen as one of the most successful people in resisting British imperial expansion in India. And when his, um, when his palace in Mysore was seized and destroyed, this mechanical tiger which you would wind up and it would maul a red coat English soldier whilst uh, it uh, has an organ inside it which would let out this tremendous roar, um, was seized, taken back to London and now sits in the V&A. And when I was thinking about the book and thinking, okay I've some British characters in here, I want to have something which has more to do with the British Empire, I remember you know, uh, that site Tipu's Tiger coming back to me. And I thought, oh, that, that could be the candidate. So, yeah, drawn from lots of different areas, I suppose.
1: Well, it's a very entertaining read and some wonderful insights there into the Georgian period. The book is called Meet the Georgians, Epic Tales from Britain's Wildest Century. It's published in hardback by William Collins. The author is Robert Peel. And Robert, I know you spell the surname P-E-A-L, but it's still, it's a great Georgian, I suppose, Georgian-Victorian <laughs> name itself.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well I uh yeah, I I've only just got around to forgiving my parents for giving me that name. I think I was um I was either gonna be a policeman or a history teacher with that name. and thankfully I went for the latter.
1: Well, we're delighted you went into the history field as well. Thanks a million <laughs> Robert for joining us tonight. Lovely, thank you. We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this.
0: Talking history
1: history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. For many centuries, Ireland was known as the land of saints and scholars, yet the Irish experience of Christianity was never simple and has never been simple or uncomplicated. And a new book describes the emergence, the long dominance, the sudden division, as well as the recent decline of Ireland's most significant religion. And in doing so, it tells the history of this island and its peoples. The book is called The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is is Crawford Gribbon. And Crawford, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to be here. Let's begin with the rise. Uh, When and how did Christianity come to Ireland?
3: That's a really interesting question, partly because it's almost impossible to answer. We don't know when the first Christians arrived in Ireland, but we do know there were Christians here in 431, because that's when the Pope sent Palladius to be their bishop. He was the first bishop of the Christians in Ireland. Um, it's possible these earlier Christians had been slaves, or you know, were um, malcontent who had travelled here from from elsewhere. Uh, we don't know who they were, we don't know where they were. Probably somewhere in the Leinster area. We're not exactly sure. So for the year the year four three one is really the first year, the first hard evidence we have for Christians existing on this island.
1: And it's fascinating how there was from that very beginning, and as, as a peculiar Irish dimension to the to, to the church that there was a very much a, a different way or a. Unique way of doing things. That's right, Patrick.
3: So, really, from its earliest days, the Irish church develops in a very idiosyncratic way. It's beyond the boundaries of the, the Roman Empire, even as the Empire is contracting through this period. But it's also beyond the boundaries, really, of organized Christianity. Uh, when when Palladius and then Patrick come uh, and their associates uh, in the early 5th century, middle 5th century, they're really pushing beyond territories that, that have ever been Christianized. And so they're, they're improvising a lot. And I think one of the really obvious ways in which they do improvise is in terms of church government, how how to organise the church. Elsewhere in Europe, uh, the church by the 5th century had a a very clear structure of episcopal oversight. In other words, the church was ruled by bishops or governed by bishops and synods. Uh, But power resided in persons, and these uh, bishops were often located in major urban centres, towns, cities and so forth. But Ireland had... No towns or cities really worth speaking of in this period. And so church government had to improvise to to take account of that fact. So power and authority tended to be rooted in monasteries and in monastic federations rather than in bishops as such. Now, there's a really interesting overlap between bishops and monasteries really for the first couple of centuries of the Irish church. And again, that's most unusual in, in, in European terms. But what that means is that there emerges in Ireland a kind of competition, a kind of rivalry between different, we might almost say denominations of of monasteries, some of them looking to Columba, some of them looking to Bridget, some of them looking to Patrick. But they all take on a slightly different complexion. And so even from the very earliest years of Christianity, there's variety within the Irish church. There's different ways of doing things, even different ways of calculating the date of Easter. Um, There are, you know, there's, I think, maybe a a two-week window of variation between different dates on which Easter is celebrated, between these different monastic federations, and that continues right up to the 8th century. But one of the most enduring, long-lasting of the idiosyncrasies of the Irish church is its tendency to allow its priests to be married, Uh, and that's something that uh, reformers try to stamp out in the 12th century, Uh, But it's something that continues right the way through to the 16th century when, ironically, it's the Protestant Reformation uh, that really pushes the traditionally minded part of the Irish church, the the, the Catholics, to organise as a community much more fully and finally, and finally to stamp out uh, the, the, the practice of clerical marriage.
1: Now, skipping ahead a number of centuries, let's go to the 16th century and the Reformation. Why did the Protestant Reformation fail in Ireland?
3: The Protestant Reformation failed in Ireland, most obviously, because nobody wanted it or hardly anybody wanted it. There was some kind of census taken at the beginning of the 17th century that suggested at that point, which is now, what, 80 years after the beginning of official uh, reform within the Irish church and state, around 80 years after that reform began, there were still less than 120 Irish-born Catholics who'd converted to the Reformed Church. So why was it such a dramatic failure? Well, it seems to be such a dramatic failure precisely because some of the things that were pointed to as evidences of abuse in the church in Europe, for example, clergy with uh, concubines or or semi-official wives and families, while elsewhere, they may have been objects of ridicule and satire. In Ireland, that kind of practice was regarded as normal. It was regarded as just part and parcel of what it meant to be a clergyman, a, a priest within the Irish church. So, the, you know, the, the major doctrinal issues that, that we know about in the European Reformations, um, Martin Luther's claim of justification by faith, for example, it just doesn't get purchase in Ireland. It never really gets momentum going in Ireland, partly because Almost everybody is very satisfied with the church as it exists.
1: And then again, skipping ahead some centuries to uh, the creation of the state in Northern Ireland, uh, the creation of the free state in the south, you have a a significant division there politically, but there's also a kind of a religious division as well in terms of uh, the dominant religions.
3: That's right. So if if you look at the Free State, which becomes the Republic eventually in the later 1940s, it's got a very very small Protestant population, which continues to decline until by the early 1960s, the Protestant community in the Republic represents probably around three percent, four percent of the of the total population. In Northern Ireland, there's a, a much different situation. Northern Ireland gets set up supposedly as a Protestant parliament for a Protestant people, but in fact around one third of the population is Catholic and that, that population proportion continues to grow through the history of the Northern Ireland state. So in some senses what happens in 1922 all the way up to the 1937 constitution and what becomes the Republic is, is a really ambitious attempt to create a fully functioning Christian state. De Valera and other architects of the early state are trying to work out what should a Christian state look like and they get a lot of advice not just from catholic clergy and, and and members of the hierarchy but from protestants as well and they're really deliberately trying to craft something which is distinct and which is really up to date in terms of catholic social teaching they can do so because they will have implicitly the support of a vast proportion of the population for whom that is the most natural thing to do in northern ireland the state is much more conservative in a way it, it doesn't really break with the past in the way that the, the southern state is able to do, it, it, it never really has the ambition to create itself as a fully functioning religious state, although certainly some members of government would, would have liked that to happen.
1: And finally, Crawford, what do you see as the future of, of Christianity in Ireland, given that there has been such a, a rapid process of secularisation, definitely in the south and, and, and happening in the north as well? Is there a future?
3: I think there's definitely a future, but it's it's going to be a very different kind of Christianity to the kind of Christianity we've been used to. The major denominations uh, are certainly beginning to crumble in terms of weekly church attendance uh, in, in the Republic. That's especially obvious. It's obvious, too, in the north, though. I think that it's taking much slower. Uh, but the direction of travel, I think, is, is broadly similar. And so I think that, you know, we're going to see a much more lay led a much more improvisory, much less denominational, much less churchly kind of Christianity. Uh, I mean, the church lurches from crisis to crisis, always has and probably um, is likely to continue to do that. Um, But with gifted leadership, you know, with some clarity of vision, with some ambition, I think there's no reason why it can't reform uh, and perhaps think about how to do things differently in the future.
1: Okay, well, Crawford, congratulations on the book. It's called The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author, Crawford Griven. And Crawford, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Patrick. We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this.
0: Talking history,
1: history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book provides a dedicated presentation of the renowned Connemara singer Colm O'Quion and it places Colm in the context of life in Connemara during his lifetime as a farmer and a fisherman for whom song, lore and music were the fabric of his everyday life. The book is called Colm O'Quion, an Irish singer and his world. It's published in hardback by Cork University Press and I'm delighted to welcome the author E O'Gon to the show tonight. Uh, Renoch, you're very welcome.
4: Thank you very much. Uh, tell us
1: about Colm O'Quion. Uh, talk to us about his significance as a singer and why uh, this uh, bringing together of Irish vernacular culture is so important.
4: Well, Colum was a small farmer and fisherman who uh, lived in Glinch, not far from Corna and not far from Cashel, uh, about 60 miles west of Galway. And he had very little formal education but his His lore, his singing, his stories and his songs were very much part of the fabric of the Irish-speaking society of the area at the time. And I think that he belonged to a time, uh, he was born in 1893, he belonged to a time before the formal presentation of... Songs uh, and lore and stories took place. So it was very much in the natural environment of his people, his relations and his neighborhood uh, that these uh, songs emerged and were sung and were performed. And I think that is one of the basic uh, messages, I suppose, of his life that it was, it was different to the way perhaps that we are inclined to view uh, music and song today in that they have taken very much to the stage and to a more public performance and maybe also the notion of competitions wasn't as much to the fore in, at his time.
1: And this book brings together some wonderful archival material and uh, there's uh, the autobiography that uh, collected through Seamus Ennis. Uh, it's in the original Irish with an English translation that there's a wonderful bringing together of, of all these different elements in this book.
4: That's right. I, I think that his his songs tell us a great deal about himself, and I think what attracted me initially to uh, to Cullum as as a singer was that sense of fun and enjoyment of of life that he had. And when he was listening to sound recordings of them that were made during the time of the Irish Folklore Commission, that uh, the laughter, the burst of laughter at the end of the songs, that comes across very very strongly in the in the more light hearted songs. It was just in, in listening to the songs as well and reading through the transcriptions as various collectors of the Irish Folklore Commission had, had done uh, of the, the material they collected from Colum. Reading through that, I got a sense of the enormous breadth and wealth of his material and his own artistry and his sense of his own artistry as well. In talking to Colum's family, his sons and daughter, in, in recent years, I also learned that the, the neighbours used to come in to listen to Colum singing and telling stories, and that people were guaranteed a very enjoyable night, a night full of fun, uh, when in Winter Nights in particular, when Cullen would, would sing.
1: Was there anything that surprised you in the course of the research? Because we get a great sense of his personality, the the humour, uh, the decisions made, that we get, you know, uh, perhaps different insights into this remarkable singer.
4: Yes, I think one thing that surprised me was how imaginative he was. And how, his life wasn't an easy life. He was uh, never materially well off but that he was able to use his imagination and his artistry in very practical ways. For example, at one point, um, I think it was in the 1940s, where he was being advised by the local um, county engineer how, if he was to build a new house, how it should be built. But Colum felt that he and the family would be better off if there were more light coming into the house, and the house might be designed to sit in a different position in the landscape. And when that was explained to the engineers, and that, that was how the, the house was built according to Connell's plan. And other instances of his um, ingenuity, I think, that when he was able to uh, make new pedals for his bicycle, for example, when the, the, the pedals of his bicycle were worn and he actually made uh, new pedals for his bicycle. He was a wonderful craftsman and he was uh, seemed locally to be kind of a, a genius, I suppose, uh, in that he was able to make tables and chairs and uh, design dresses and make them. So he was very much in demand in the locality as well for all these kinds of, of crafts. And he was uh, renowned as a very good fisherman as well. His compositions surprised me how talented he was in, in making a, a, a din of oron, on creating, composing songs and poetry. And how he seemed to make these almost on the spur of the moment, or kind of an ad hoc situation.
1: Well, Renoch, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's an absolutely magnificent book on the work of Colum O'Quion. The book is called Colum O'Quion, An Irish Singer and His World, published in hardback by Cork University Press. Uh, the wonderful Renoch E Ogan has put it all together.
0: Talking history,
1: history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Between 1825 and 1845, Church of Ireland missionaries tried to entice the Irish-speaking people of the Dingle Peninsula away from what they saw as superstition and enthrallment to Rome, while Catholic priests objected to what they saw as inducements offered to people to convert. And a new book explores the whole conversion campaign and the controversy around it. The book is called Faith and Fury, the Evangelical Campaign in Dingle and West Kerry, 1825 to 1845. It's published in paperback by Eastwood Books. The author is Brian McMahon. And Brian, you're very welcome back to the show.
0: Thank you very much, Patrick. It
1: is an extraordinary story and it's it's a story full of such fury and controversy. So why was there such a coordinated conversion campaign in Dingle and West Kerry at this time?
0: Well, attention was first focused on the area by the Irish Society for the Education of the Native Irish through the medium of their own language a grand title to the society. And their aim was to introduce the Bible to Irish speakers because they believed the Church of Ireland had neglected native Irish speakers and the monoglot, roughly two million people, who spoke only Irish. So the arrival of the Bible in Irish was a, a huge uh, attraction to people, um, to hear the great stories of the Bible in their, in their own language, first of all, and then through the schools that the society set up to learn to read for themselves these great stories in the Bible and to hold it in their hands. So the language was a, a huge attraction. People were described as being all on a blaze for the Irish scriptures, and um, it, it touched their hearts in ways that perhaps the Latin and the rituals of the Catholic Church didn't at that time.
1: So was it a successful campaign? Did you see people converting and were they converting for, I suppose you'd call them genuine reasons or were there inducements as well, which is what was also claimed?
0: Well, there were charges and counter charges of all time and it did provoke a lot of... um, antagonism, of course, from the existing um, parish clergy, the Catholic clergy of the side, And it's difficult. It was difficult then and difficult now to adjudicate on people's motives. And I suppose the best thing that we can say is that there were mixed motives. Some people converted for perhaps the purest of reasons and others converted for um, less noble reasons, um, because undoubtedly there was a sense of bettering yourself The people who were targeted were indeed the poorest of the poor. And so going along with the conversion that followed the introduction of the Irish Bible improved their loss in life, there's no doubt about it. Um, Their opportunities for employment, their association with maybe the grandees of the Dingle area, the landlords and the public officials and the people in the Coast Guard, all of those would have been in the Church of Ireland already. The real antagonism came when it became institutionalized. It began as a, a wholesome movement and often without opposition from priests, a wholesome movement of Bible reading in their in their own language. And it was relatively innocuous. But when buildings started to appear, like parsonages and churches and schools and many, many more people began to join then, it was perceived as a threat and the money that was involved um was definitely envied by some of the Catholic clergy who wouldn't have had anything like the resources that their counterparts in the Church of Ireland had.
1: And the controversy was, I suppose, stoked and and uh, in, in, intensified by the, the rival newspapers which covered all of these things. And it led to a, a, an incredible libel trial in March
0: 1845. Yes, it's... Uh modern in some ways that there was a whole media dimension to it it's amazing to learn that in Tralee at that time there were three newspapers being published and one of them tried to steer fairly neutral ground but the other two the Kerry Evening Post was partisan on the side of the Church of Ireland and landlordism and the status quo and then the Kerry Examiner was partisan on the other side populist and nationalist and pro-O'Connell and pro-Catholic, of course, and they really fomented the issue very much. Week after week, sermons were reported, editorials were written, letters were published, and the language was quite quite venomous, I have to say, at times, and that is one of the reasons why the legacy of the whole conversion campaign is um, regarded as slightly toxic, I suppose would be the word for it. It's it's, um, embarrassing and perhaps even... um, Shameful reading now to hear two Christian denominations going at each other with such uh, fury.
1: And is the legacy of the, the events of this time, is it still present there in Dingle and, and the West Kerry area? Are there still signs of it around?
0: There are indeed, especially in the, in, the, in the buildings as you travel around the peninsula. For example, in the heart of Dingle itself, there's a street called the Colony. And you look and wonder, what was the colony? And what it was, it was a little enclave of houses where converts came together for their own protection, and for their own survival, because ostracism or boycotting, before the word was invented, boycotting was a part of the way they were treated at the time. So they clustered together in a colony for their own safety and security and solidarity. Likewise, you'll see um, a big parsonage building in the, in Ballyferreter, and uh, further on in Kilmer or a church in splendid isolation, an old Protestant church um, without a village or anything around it. And of course, even on the Great Blasket Island, the first building that people, visitors to the island see are the ruins of the old school of the mission, the mission school. Very
1: good. Well, it's an extraordinary story, Brian. The book is called Faith and Fury The Evangelical Campaign in Dingle and West Kerry, 1825 to 1845, published in paperback by Eastwood Books. The author, Brian McMahon. And, Brian, thanks so much for joining us tonight.
0: My pleasure, Patrick. Thank you. We'll be back
1: with more talking history on News Talk right after this.
0: Talking history,
1: history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book tells the extraordinary story of someone who was a true political maverick and who had... Uh, an incredible insight into some of the major events of 20th century Irish politics. The book is called Pader Cowan, Westmeath GAA Administrator and Political Maverick. It's part of the Maynooth Studies in Local History series, published in paperback by Four Courts Press. And I'm delighted to welcome back to the show the author, Tom Hunt. Tom, you're very welcome back. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. Talk to us about Padder Cowan because he really was there for so many of the great events uh, politically of the 20th century. You know, whether it was the War of Independence, whether it was, you know, say, the mother and child scheme, you know, the, the political events of, of all of these different decades. Who was he? And I suppose what got you interested in his story?
5: Well, who was he? Well, Patrick Cowan was born in Cavan in 1903. And his initial into politics or into the world of politics took place in in uh, 1920 when he um, became involved in the War of Independence, was, was uh, arrested almost immediately and spent 13 months in Cromwell Road Jail and was released from prison uh, at the time of the treaty signing and then joined the, the new Irish Free State Army. My interest in Padder Cowan, I suppose, began when I did some study on the development of Cusick Park in Mullingar, County Westmeath, and um, Pader was really the one who drove that uh, project. He he had he was of immense significance in the uh, world of the Westmeath GA between 1925 roughly, 1927 and 1937, uh, a decade as uh, chairman or secretary of the board at various times during which he transformed the world of Westmeat GA and really uh, he's, I suppose there is no doubt about that he's the founding father of, of the modern Westmeat GA that was my initial uh, contact with the, the, the life and times of Paddock Cowan and in, in researching the development of Cusick Park I did come across uh, references to Paddock Cowan as a, a politician in later life now, the, the people who referred to Padraic as a politician didn't know anything about his GEA career, and, I, and essentially I didn't obviously know anything about his political career. So I engaged in further research. And then when, a few years ago, when Eamon Dunphy published his memoir, um, Rocky Road, he devoted a, a section to the family who had uh, been threatened with eviction in the early 1950s. And Eamon's mother took her two kids, and they went down to Dublin's Dorset Street into the offices of this uh, this lawyer, Patrick Cowan, who listened to the story, took on the Dumfries and protected uh, saved the family from eviction. So that sent me back to Patrick Cowan again.
1: Yeah, so it really is one of these remarkable careers and talk to me about his political involvement then because he went from Labour into more radical politics then climbed the public to, and then being an independent but he he was someone who really admired Noel Brown and and, and strongly supported him during the whole mother and child uh, controversy.
5: Yes, indeed. I suppose you I suppose to understand Patrick Cowan politically maybe maybe um his political involvement is associated with Disillusionment of the new independent Ireland. He explained that I think the key phrase in understanding his career. Maybe he joined the Labour Party because he could not stand aside and witness the hunger, squalor, and misery as the two large parties cut each other's throats. So he spent the best part of a decade in the Labour Party. He represented Westmead, or the, the, he represented the Labour Party in the Westmead, Westmead constituency, on four occasions, unsuccessfully. Um, he became the director of organisation for the Labour Party in 1942, and in 1944, he produced the Vanguard Proclamation, which calls for the ending of capitalism in Ireland, to establish a socialist republic, and to undo the British conquest in all, in all aspects. And this must suppose, began the parting of the ways between Patrick Owen and the Labour Party. In 1946 then he, came, he became very involved in the Republican Prisoners Relief Association in association with Sean, Sean McBride, Conlehan and Noel Hartnett. And really the genesis of Publica, I suppose is to be found in this, in this uh, network of legal people. And uh, he was a founding member then of Publica, a Republican party as we know with a very strong social agenda. He was the, the financial controller of the party. He brought political experience to Tlalapolita, which the other people, other main individuals in the party lacked. He was the one with, I suppose, with, the, with the experience of working at the grassroots uh, level of party politics. And as we know, then, in the general election of 1947, Tlalapolita uh, um, re- returned to Dolaran with 10 seats, and Padraig Cowan finally made it into the Haddad Halls of Dáil Éireann. He was elected for the Dublin North East constituency. Unfortunately, I suppose his association with the Crown kind of the public, ended quite ended soon after that. Within five months of entering Dáil Éireann, um, he was expelled from the party. He opposed Ireland's, or the States, uh, and spoke in the Dáil against the States, um... Association with the Marshall Plan, which of course was as John John baby, as the Minister for External Affairs, he had been involved in, in the negotiations and so on, uh, dealing with the Marshall Plan, and it spoke, spoke against Denis Doyle and was expelled from the party. He was out of the party when he was in, an independent when the Mother and Child Scheme was introduced the scheme to provide free medical care for all children under 16 and their mothers without um, without any means test, which I suppose essentially would have been a, a public policy.
1: And Tom, can I ask you then about some of the, maybe the you know, because there was these tragedies and darker elements as well. He, for example, uh, spoke out about against institutional abuse in the doll in the 1950s. But then, in the late 1950s, he was convicted and, and was back in, in jail for fraud. And What what happened there?
5: Yes, unfortunately, his career is bookended by, by, by terms of imprisonment. Yeah, he, he, he lost his Dáil in 1944 and he's, he's professional and and I suppose private private life seems to have unraveled for the, the, in the in the second half of the 1950s. He was um, his wife, Rosemary, died after a brief illness in 1955, and um, that seems to have uh, had a, uh, a serious impact on him. In 1957, he was convicted of fraudulent conversion, where he, he had a residence uh, uh, a block there in a in an employment injury case. And successfully represented, and the money that was awarded to the uh, to the individual, uh, Cowan, essentially converted, I suppose, for his own use. or was convicted anyway of converting it to his own use, and when he was unable to pay to pay the the uh, his client, when he requested payment, uh, he was charged, was charged and convicted, and imprisoned in nineteen in nineteen fifty eight. He spent a year in prison in 1958. Uh, prior to that, he had been declared bankrupt, and he also had uh, was obviously removed from the from the role of solicitors. Yeah, he, in 1960, he published this short booklet, an amazing document, really amazing social document. Nothing like it uh, had been seen prior to this. In which he, which he examined, I suppose he put his he put his 12 months in prison to very good use. Uh, he examined the. Uh, Irish penal reform system. The book has an a inde- pretty intense examination of Chai prison and other prisons in the country as well. Reform schools, industrial schools, he said, and reformities can be a positive danger to the children, sent to them. And this was really an extremely radical document for its time.
1: I know, and it gives an insight into how he was able to, to channel, I suppose, his own experiences and put them to, to good work. And I think your book really shows how how this figure, who, whose name won't be familiar to many people, played such a significant role during uh, very, very different periods of Irish history. The book is called Padder Cown, Westmead GA Administrator and Political Maverick. It's part of the Minute Studies and Local History series, published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author, Tom Hunt. And Tom, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Patrick. Well, that's brilliant. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this.
0: Talking History history on News Talk.
1: Well, welcome back to Talking History. The advent of railways in Britain was a fundamental part of its economic and social revolution in the 19th century, with technical advances that were the envy of the world and chronicled from the beginning through meticulous drawings – detailed plans were created of locomotives carriages and wagons as well as of stations bridges and tunnels and about a million of these magnificent drawings have survived and a new book uses them to tell the story of railways the book is called railways a history in drawings it's published in hardback by pems and hudson the author is christopher Valcoinen, and christopher you're very welcome to the show Hello. So Christopher, uh, first of all, it's quite incredible that so many of these drawings have survived. Can you talk to us about uh, these engineering drawings? What exactly are they and why were they done?
6: So engineering drawings, um they are typically quite large format. Uh so we're talking um so it's the kind of thing that will fill your dining room table quite often. That will uh and they are the drawings of, in, in meticulous detail of uh, objects that were used to build the railways, everything from locomotives down to their very individual components, uh, sheets of metal, but nuts and bolts, everything that you can possibly imagine that was used to build the railways. And their purpose was to store that information uh, that was created by the designers and take that to the... Um, uh, the work the workshops uh, and the craftsmen that's job was to actually build them so that they had the um, the information they needed to produce everything and it's incredible that you get uh, so much
1: interest in uh, all of these different areas the trains themselves the carriages the stations the bridges the tunnels that in a way through by 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 in a way you're able to reconstruct everything using these drawings
6: uh, yeah the, there are people out there that that have been uh in in britain building brand new locomotives to to designs that were produced uh 60 70 80 years ago uh the information is all still there where all the, uh, whenever the drawings have survived not everything uh, from uh the past has survived but in a lot of cases there's enough information there to, to do that so they're using the same techniques that we used um, uh, decades ago, or, or even centuries ago, to produce um, new locomotives, just which sort of illustrates just how well they are at storing this information for the future. Some wonderful innovations
1: that they were playing around with as well during this period. Talk to me about the hover train.
6: Oh, the the hover train was a, a fantastic little concept. Um, if you can imagine a um, just a concrete beam that was a single uh, a, it's like a single rail but uh, like a monorail but it was a, a quite a large chunky beam and around that beam you applied what was essentially three um hover like like plates you would get uh, as a hovercraft that meant that anything that uh, kind of vehicle that you put on it was effectively hovering in air but could be guided along this this beam uh which would uh then form a, a type of railway the idea was is that you had no friction between the vehicle and what it was riding on so you could achieve much higher speeds. The concept was rather overtaken then by the idea of maglev so instead of do- using air pressure like a hel- hovercraft you actually to use magnets to do that and that's still a technology that's being developed now um, even 50 years on from when the original concept first appeared.
1: And Christopher, what's an, another fascinating part of this story? It's that it's mainly women who are doing these these wonderful, uh, magnificent drawings, and uh, it's their work that has survived today.
6: Exactly. So um, a, a bit about the process of, of how engineering drawing is done. The Original draftsmen would make a design, but that wasn't very useful. It's just a design on a single sheet of paper. You need to give that information contained within it to a lot of people to actually produce the final product. So, in the 1860s, a process um, of blueprinting was developed where you could turn a single drawing into multiple copies. But before you could make that that step and do the blueprints, you had to produce a translucent copy of the drawing on tracing paper or something that's called wax linen which is a linen that's been waxed or starched to make it transparent and you could use that to produce multiple copies through the blueprinting process and the people that did the actual copying uh, or tracing as it was known um, were from the start of the 20th century almost exclusively women and um, but the those copies that they produced were what were known as the master copies because those were the ones you could produce lots more copies from. They were the valuable copies that could be used into the future. So those are the ones that survive now. So it's in what's actually held in the archives at the National Railway Museum is work that was mostly produced by women and not by men.
1: Very good. Well, the book is called Railways, A History in Drawings. It's published in hardback by Thames and Hudson, the author, Christopher Valcoinen. And uh, Christopher, thanks a million for joining us tonight.
6: Thank you very much.
1: And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Calf, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be looking at the life and legacy of King Canute, and we'll be finding out how a Danish prince became the king of england so join us next week on news talk we've been talking history good night
0: talking history history
1: History on news talk